0: Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Last week we looked at Mary's exaltation, her wonderful song of praise for the coming of the Messiah. And today we're going to look deeper into chapter 1 at Zacharias' song of blessing and praise to God for the coming of not only the Messiah, but also his own son, a.k.a. John the Baptist. But before we do so, let's take a time here for a little bit of a fuller Christmas scripture reading today, starting back in verse 1 of Luke chapter 1. This is the account of God working in the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth, and it starts all the way back at the beginning of chapter. So follow along as we ponder this uh, less often read portion of the Christmas story. Luke chapter 1 verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God." It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now, next in this chapter is the account of Mary and the angel foretelling of Jesus' birth, followed by Mary's Magnificat, which we looked at last last week. So let's jump to verse 57, where Elizabeth and Zacharias' account continues. Verse 57, Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And here are the verses that we'll focus on for today's study. Verse 67. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit. to grant us that we, being rescued rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, Zacharias is now speaking to the baby John, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We're reminded once again that the the arrival of the Christ child signaled many wondrous things. And Lord, as we read this account, uh, we we stand in awe again at the way you came to men and revealed Christ and worked and prepared the way for Him. And Lord, as we ponder these words of Zacharias' praise, I pray that they would become most personal for each of us. They would recognize that you are worthy of everything said in this prayer. Lord, help us as we approach Christmas Day to approach in a sincere and deep state of worship and joy and peace because of what you have done. Open our eyes now to the words of Scripture. Help us to understand in a way that goes beyond our minds. Lord, give light today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this uh, poem or song of praise that we just read at the end of the chapter here has, has famously come to be known as Zacharias's benedictus. His benediction, his blessing, which is the first word of the Latin translation of this praise. Just like Mary's Magnificat, her magnification of God, which we looked at last week. Now we're going to see that this Benedictus is divided into two primary parts. We could call the first part Proclamation's Message and the second, Proclamation's Purpose. What is said and why it is said. We're also going to see that there are eight life-changing and hope-giving messages in the proclamation portion but before we look at them quickly notice the introduction that is given in verse 67 it says and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied now before we look at what he says it's worth noting that the Bible often quotes people in the narrative sense and oftentimes their words were good but here Scripture distinctly elevates the praise and the words that we're about to read as specifically being Holy Spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-driven. That means that this is an inspired proclamation. That's a very important distinction to make as we read through the Scriptures. And here's why I'm so excited to be in this particular text with you this Christmas season. Just as we saw last week with Mary's Magnificat, her, her proclamation exaltation, We're going to see that every line of this song of praise today also applies to us. Every point here is a wondrous truth that we should be proclaiming like Zacharias. These are truths that we should be enjoying and celebrating. And here's the first message in Zacharias' proclamation. Number one, praise God. He said in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now, this word blessed is an interesting word. It's the same Greek word that is used for praise. And Zacharias rightly begins his proclamation with praise, not with information, not with petition, not even with repentance, but with worship. Everything that follows in this prayer, this proclamation, flows from a heart of exuberant praise right away we find ourselves prompted this christmas season to ask lord what about me is that the heart and soul expression that leads my relationship with god and my worship of him the psalmist said in psalm 95 or 6 oh come let us worship and bow down Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. The more we study the Bible, the more we see that the heart of worship and adoration and blessing is the foundation from which all prayer and all faith-filled living stems. We pray because the Creator of the universe is worthy. We strive to live for Him and like Mary, we, we strive to consider ourselves his bondservants because he is worthy, because he rightly deserves it. All of our life should be a blessing of the Lord our God. Message number two in this proclamation God is with us. The verse continues For he has visited us. I am concerned that Christians have become so accustomed to hearing and talking about God, so used to referencing the fact that He hears our prayers and never leaves or forsakes us, so used to saying that His mercies are new every morning and that His Spirit indwells us, that we forget that the rest of the world does not know these things. I suspect we could walk down the street telling people that God is with us And at least three out of four would have no idea what we are talking about. Oftentimes as Christians, if we're honest with ourselves, the idea of being a bold and joyful proclaimer for God strikes some fear in us. And one of the reasons for this being, I just don't know what I'd say. So as we walk through this text today, recognize, here are eight things we should be saying. And one of them is, God is with us. He is mine. He can be in you too. The doctrine of the indwelling Holy Spirit is not some high and lofty and distant theological pillar left best to seminary students and theologians. No, it's a major part of what every follower of Christ is supposed to be proclaiming to the world. Did you know that God is with us? Did you know that Jesus, that babe in the manger, is the Son of God? Those are some good conversation starters. What a hope-giving truth to share with a world who knows so little. Now, here's where Zacharias' theology parts paths again from many of the religions of the world. There are many spiritual people who will already acknowledge that God is with us. They would say He's in the sun, the moon, and the stars. He's in the wind and fire. He's in the mountain and the oceans. He's even in us. This is known as what? Pantheism. The idea that reality is God. He is in everything. He is everything. Sometimes called Mother Nature and so on. What's interesting is there is no clear, divine source revealing those truths to humanity. Unlike the Bible and the life of Jesus Christ, where the Creator of the universe not only speaks to mankind, He came down from heaven. He became man in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only that, He even died for mankind. This leads us to the third message of this proclamation. God saves he rescues us. Verse 68 continues, and accomplished redemption for His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant. Again, we see here that Zacharias's spiritual understanding, his theology just separated from so many world religions. This is the God who redeems. This is the God who... Who has now paid the ransom price for us the price to free his people from the curse of sin and death to buy them back what a thought that's what redemption is speaking of and what was the price tag what was the cost the lifeblood of his only begotten son jesus christ also known as the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world Notice the behemoth of truth that lies between verses 68 and 69. God not only gave His only begotten Son to die on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world. That Son was also raised up a horn of salvation. And this word horn is often used in the Old Testament. And it's used metaphorically based on the horns of an animal. When animals defend themselves or engage in battle they lower their head and drive their horns forward. When a bull charges, his horns are what we fear, not his tail. The horn was known to represent strength and authority, courage and victory. And Jesus Christ was not only the ransom paid to redeem mankind from the curse of spiritual and eternal death, He was also the horn of salvation, raised up, the powerful victor, the king of kings. He was brought back to life for us, the text says. Those are two of the greatest words in Scripture. For us, he's not just the God who saves, he's the God who saves us. Christianity is a highly personal faith. It's built on relationships the greatest possible relationship in all the world, and that is us with the Lord our Maker, who not only made us, but loves us. If you take time to read the Bible and study it, you'll likely find what so many of us here have found. And that is that in the deepest, truest sense, the Bible is a love letter from God to humanity. Verse 69 ends with, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And last week we noted that Mary was obviously well acquainted with the Holy Scriptures. She loved the Word of God. She had it memorized. Her faith was in the promises. And her lifestyle honored the Lord and His Word. And that is one of the reasons that God's favor rested upon her. How invaluable to note that the same is true of Zacharias now and Elizabeth. The redemption of God's people, the horn of salvation, the house and ancestry of David are all concepts that are deeply rooted and woven throughout the Old Testament. And Zacharias dials into the lineage of David, the lineage of God's servant with good reason. If you're familiar with the Davidic covenant, that covenant that God made with David about a thousand years prior, then you recognize that the people of Israel were waiting for that prophecy to be fulfilled, that covenant to be fulfilled, that God spoke to David through the prophet Nathan. Second Samuel chapter seven, verses twelve to sixteen: God said to David, I will raise up your descendant after you, speaking of Solomon, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Those are stunning words. Surely David and all who heard them thought, how can this even be possible? But God has spoken. Israel was waiting on, they were banking on, God to restore the lineage and the kingdom of David. They were waiting for him to fulfill this promise. And yes, Mary's genealogy was recorded all the way back to King David. She was a direct descendant. and The same for Joseph, who although he was not the biological father of Jesus, he was the earthly father of Jesus. In this song of praise, Zacharias, who remember, was a priest in the temple of God, and as such would have been a minister of the Scriptures as well, Zacharias was pulling together the big picture of the Old Testament in this Holy Spirit-inspired blessing of God. This is the God who saves. This is His Son, the promised horn of salvation from the house of David. This was big news. God is saving us. And how much less should we be proclaiming the God who saves in the 21st century? Message number four in Zacharias' proclamation, God foretold, we see this in verse 70, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Again, Zacharias is pulling together the miraculous, prophetic, big picture. The birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of many prophecies given by many prophets over many years, even many centuries. Such miraculous circumstance. This is one of the reasons we believe the Christian faith. Such miraculous circumstance adds a great weight of authenticity to the proclamation that this indeed was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This wasn't just a theological fad. This wasn't somebody's idea. It wasn't a cool new, new idea to inspire hope and good moral living. No, this was the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies How I wish we had time to do a lengthy study of the prophecies. Here are just a few verses. Psalm 22, 16 to 18. This is one of what we consider the Messianic Psalms. It says this, A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. All of this happened to Jesus. And these are the words of King David right about a thousand years before Christ. Who speaks of pierced hands and feet feet, and the, the dividing of garments and the casting of lots and the shredding of flesh so that the bones bear open? Isaiah chapter seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Micah 5.2, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. Bethlehem was a nobody on the map. And yet hundreds of years prior, it was foretold that the ruler of Israel would come from that village. Where again was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The week before Easter, before Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate what holiday? Palm Sunday. That's because Matthew 21, verses 6 to 10 says, The disciples went and did just as as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt. And laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Several hundred years prior, it was prophesied that Jesus, the King, the righteous one having salvation, would roll into town on a young donkey. Who says that kind of thing several hundred years prior? Only a prophet speaking exactly what God told him. How I wish I had time to read all of Isaiah 53 with you this morning. Surely our griefs he himself bore Who would predict that salvation would come in such an unspeakable and odd fashion? Read the whole chapter sometime if you haven't already. It's the life of Christ detailed from birth to death to resurrection written several hundred years prior. And Zacharias reminds us in Luke 1 that all of these prophecies were foretold by God through the prophets. Message number five in this proclamation, evil will not win. Verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. We know that the enemies of God are the forces of dark, darkness, talking about spiritual wickedness in high places and all those who eternally scribe to them. They permanently hate God and all those who follow him we are looking at the greatest battle. That is the battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, between life and death. And in that context, Zacharias points out our salvation. Evil will not win. That's why there is such celebration of Jesus bringing salvation and bringing rescue from sin and death. That's a proclamation of hope in a very dark and hurting world. Next time you or I happen to be sitting on a bus or at at the park or wherever with a friend or or even a stranger who for whatever reason is sharing their troubles with us, let us remember this message of our great proclamation. Evil will not win. And here's one reason why. Message number six. God is merciful. Verse 72. To show mercy toward our fathers. This was the mercy promised being spoken of here. The the compassion of God cares about our hurts, especially the spiritual and eternal hurts of humanity. Every time I hear someone say, I just don't think God cares. In a sense, I understand. But at the same time, my eyes bug out and I think, do you not know what God has done for you? Yes, terminal illness is awful. Yes, financial pain is agonizing. Yes, relationships can wound deeply. But for the believer, for the person who chooses faith over sight, we see all of life's woes through the lens of God's mercy. Come what may, God is merciful and God has saved me. End of story. What matters most has been resolved. There is hope. Yes, but you're suffering. You're in physical agony. Your illness may take your life. How can you praise God and find hope in His mercy? Message number seven in our proclamation. God keeps His promises. The next verse, 77, continues. To show mercy toward our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. The oath which He swore to Abraham our father. We would have little to no hope if God did not keep His promises. What is the value of a promise that is doubted anyway? What is the value of a promise failed? We have hope because God is merciful. And because God is merciful, God saves. And He saves because He is true to His covenants. The arrival of the Christ child was the beginning of the fulfillment of covenants. That the total hope of Israel was hanging on. And this was the beginning of the new covenant. Last week we briefly looked at God's covenant to Abraham in the book of Genesis. The promise of a son for Abraham even in his old age, in his wife's old age. And not only a son, but many sons and daughters. Numerous as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore. But extending beyond Abraham's lineage, God also said, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That promised blessing was fulfilled in Messiah Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. All the nations have now been blessed, not just Israel. This was a universal good news. It's why we can all celebrate. And when people are hurting, especially those who know and love God and are part of His family, one of the greatest things we can do for them is remind them of the promises of God and the fact that God keeps them. Point people to the promises. That's what kept the Hebrews 11 faith role models going. Strikingly, even though many of them never experienced the promise fulfilled in this life. It was their faith that knew they would be fulfilled in the next. And God commended them for that. And how does Zacharias define the covenants in the text here? He says they were holy they're sacred. They're consecrated. These covenants were a big-time God issue. These were not the promises of men which are capable of being broken. These were the covenants of God which are impossible to be broken. This is a major part, again, of why we celebrate Christmas. It's why Zacharias burst forth into inspired praise at the thought of the soon-to-be-born Christ child, God's greatest promises were coming to fruition before their eyes and that promise is still being fulfilled today Christian friend do you and I live in the reality of the promises of God if by faith we do it will dictate the thoughts of our heart and mind it will dictate our words and our actions our emotions and our deepest hope And we see here in Zacharias' proclamation, praise emanates from the heart of faith. Praise blossoms from the heart that trusts in the Word and person of God. Message number eight. Here's the rubber meets the road consequence of the prior seven messages. Number eight, God is worthy then to be saved. uh, Excuse me, to be served. God is worthy to be served. We see this in verses 74 and 75. To grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. If you're looking for a good personal Bible study idea, here's one right there. Take time to ponder the five reasons given for how we are called and enabled to serve God and why we are called to serve and and enabled to serve Him. What I'd give for another hour today to savor these points, but very quickly, God mercifully rescues all those who repent of sin and believe in Him so we can serve Him, A, without fear. That is, fearlessly, boldly, with unshakable confidence, not ashamed, not afraid of God that He might unpredictably turn on us or ignore His promises or reveal some vein of evil in His heart. No fear there. And secondly, not afraid of man. What did the psalmist say? Psalm 56, 11, In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? B, we serve God in holiness. Forbid the thought you're saved, you can do what you want. In holiness, that is in piety, in a distinct sense of reverence and proper devotion. We're committed to Him alone. We serve God, see, in righteousness. Thayer's Dictionary defines righteousness this way. Integrity, virtue, purity of life. In a broad sense, the state of Him who is as He ought to be. The condition Acceptable to God. We serve God as we should in righteousness. D, we serve in His presence. How we need this constant reminder. So much could be said on this point. We serve not for the eyes and approval of men, but for God. Zacharias recognized this. We serve not before the eyes of the hundreds around us, but for the eye of the one who sees all things and is worthy of being served. E, we serve in perpetuation. Our loving service to God, our ministering for God and to God, our being available to serve at His beckon is not a part-time temp job. This is something we do all our days. May the people of God never tire or grow weary or discontent in the service of their Savior. Every Christian's prayer should include, God grant me the grace to serve you through my last breath. Paul said, I press on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there we have it. Eight messages that should define our Christmas proclamation. And indeed, our proclamation all the year through. Very quickly, as we wrap wrap up, Zacharias now turns the the attention to his own son, John, who was just born. Can't you just picture him holding this child and in the deepest emotion, pouring his heart into God's purpose for John's life? An inspired way he says these things following and let's look now at proclamations three purposes number one to be god's voice that is his prophet verse 76 and you child will be called the prophet of the most high undoubtedly john had a unique and distinct calling of god He spoke on behalf of God for Christ in a most divinely called way. But what about you and me? Has God not called us also in a most divine way to be His voice, His megaphone of His Word, the ambassadors of His Son, the representatives of His gospel? Yes, this is our calling, Here's the second purpose given for proclamation. To prepare the way for people to hear God's voice. Verse 76 continues, For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways. I've grown the past couple weeks to love that phrase. Prepare His ways. Prepare is defined this way in Thayer's Bible Dictionary. Metaphorically, A. Drawn from the oriental custom of sending on before kings on their journeys... Persons to level the roads and make them passable. B to prepare the minds of men to give the Messiah a fit reception and secure his blessings. You may not have ever heard someone refer to you and me as road pavers for Christ, but that's what I'm seeing in the text here. What a privileged calling and what a tremendous responsibility. God calls us to represent Him to the world in all the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the platform for our voice as we speak the words of God as His voice. How we represent God should prepare the way for people to receive Him. Christian friend, the Christmas season is an excellent time to evaluate the quality of our road work. Of course, not everyone will receive the words of eternal life. We know that the way is narrow and there be few who will find and follow it. But for those who will... Are we passionate about paving the way well for them to hear the good news? Does our lifestyle help or hinder people in their reaction to the good news? Does it make it receivable? Does our handling of the scriptures fill in the potholes in people's minds? Does it answer their questions well? This is a most remarkable calling God gave John the Baptist, and in a similar way, it is our calling too. But what exactly does it look like to pave the way well? Here's the third purpose we see for proclamation, to explain God's message. Verse 77, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The terrible state of humanity is that as a whole, we sit in darkness and the shadow of death. War, strife, suffering, Evil are all around us, and everyone is going to die, should the Lord tarry. If we sit and dwell on this reality, it's rather discouraging. But it is also naive to pretend that this is not a reality, and that it does not exist. This is our reality. But here's the other part of reality. The sunrise from on high has visited us. Salvation from eternal spiritual darkness and death is found in the forgiveness of our sins. Here's one of the greatest life questions we can ponder. Who can forgive your sins? We all know we've done wrong in this world. Sure, some more than others, but the truth reality is that we're all sinners. Who do you know who has the power to forgive your sins, to remove your guilt and wipe your slate clean, to give you the right to heaven and eternal life in the perfect, joyous presence of the God who made you? Who has that power, that authority? Now, everyone has to answer that question for themselves. But I have only found one true answer, Jesus Christ. The Bible is the historical record of God dealing with humanity since creation, all the way up to and through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you know He died for you? Death is the penalty for sin, and He paid the full price for your sins and for mine. Romans uh, chapter 10, verses 9 to 13, summarize. The knowledge of salvation. Here's how a person accepts Jesus' forgiveness. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses. There's our Proclamation resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. That's referring to the promises and the covenants kept. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have never understood and believed, I invite you to believe today. I promise it will be the best day of your life. And probably 90% of the people in this room would affirm the same thing. If you do, would you say amen? Amen. Please don't hesitate to speak to me or anyone here if you have questions about what it means to be forgiven of sin and to have the assurance of hope and in the eternal life in heaven with God. That is the message of salvation. That's the knowledge that every person needs to have. This Christmas, we celebrate the proclamation, the good news of the person who came to earth to be born in a manger, to give us salvation and forgive our sins and guide our feet into the way of peace. Friends, it's by the grace of God that I tell you, I have found peace. And many of you would say the same. Christian friends, let us celebrate. Let us celebrate with abandon. But let us also remember that it is vital for us to recognize that even as we love and treasure the meaning and the hope of this wonderful season, there are multitudes around us who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, whose feet do not know the way of peace, we as the recipients of the immeasurable and undeserved mercy and rescue of God have a moral obligation to be excellent proclaimers. May this Christmas season and beyond find us joyfully exalting, magnifying, and proclaiming Emmanuel so others can join us in saying, God is with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the peace and the hope, the sure hope of forgiveness of sins and salvation, the promise of heaven that by faith we know will be kept because you are a covenant-keeping God. Not one word of your promises has failed or will fail. Lord, who else do we have to look to for the forgiveness of sin? Who else has spoken divinely to mankind and revealed truth that goes beyond the mind of man? Who could have written these prophecies? No one but the pen of God. And so we thank you, Lord, for how you had compassion mercy upon your creation lord the thought that you loved us as john 3:16 says that you so loved us that you sent your only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life lord if there is even one here today who has not received the greatest christmas gift i pray that today you will give them the understanding and the faith to believe to call out to you as their Lord and Savior, their rescuer, their forgiver, their promise. For those of us who anchor deeply into these truths, let us remember that we have a moral obligation to proclaim Lord, you have given us a song, you have given us a reason. Let us go forth this Christmas season worshiping you first and foremost in our own hearts. Let our personal worship be exuberant. Let it be sincere as we stand, not in the manufacturing in our own minds of what religion must be, but Lord, as we simply stand in awe of you and who you are and what you have done. We love serving you. Help us to serve you well. And again, as we go through this Christmas season, may you be magnified, exalted, and proclaimed. We pray this in Jesus' name.